0: Welcome to Kishwaki Bible Church. Good morning, church. I encourage you to grab a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians. Ninety-four days from today... Two groups will look back at the event of the previous day and come to completely different conclusions about what has occurred. One group will look back at that event and conclude that it is a great success, the importance of wonderful things to come, a reason for great optimism and enthusiasm. The other group, we will look back at the very same event and conclude that it was a disaster, a travesty, perhaps the, the beginning of the end. One event, two completely different perspectives from two groups. And such is the polarizing effect of a presidential election in our country. That two groups of people can look at the very same thing, the event is exactly the same, they look at it and they come to completely different conclusions and perspectives about it. Well, in our text for this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to shine the spotlight on the most important event in all of history, namely the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, as we just sang, of Calvary some 2,000 years ago, executed by the empire of Rome. And this morning, as we look at our passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to discover why this event is the most polarizing event in all of history and why there's no escaping the reality of the cross. Because the cross stands at the center of all history, And its shadow is cast both behind it and in front of it to our day and through eternity. And so there's no escaping the shadow of the cross. And this morning as we've sung about the cross, and as now this is our third week looking at the cross... Through God's word. I am aware of, of the weighty reality of the cross for us, for me to, to speak about it and for all of us to hear it. So I want to ask the Holy Spirit and I want you to join me in asking the Holy Spirit to help us this morning. Let's pray. God, the only way for a human being created in your image to be truly happy all their days. to have deep joy, to have abiding happiness in the midst of all circumstances and hope for the future, the only way for that to happen is for that person to embrace what occurred at the cross of Jesus Christ. God, it is a weighty thing for us to gather as your people around your word and to read a text that that drills down deeply into the reality of that event and all that you accomplished through your son there. And God, I, I must confess that I am a bit overwhelmed by the task. And so, Holy Spirit, I would ask for your help this morning for me to speak what is needed. I can't speak... Nearly all of it. And Lord, I suppose our our ears can't hardly bear all of the truth and reality that is in the cross of Christ. Who you are for us in Him there. But for the next few moments, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see true, truly, see in reality who you are for us. In Christ at the cross, and help us to take that away in such a way that we are transformed, Holy Spirit would you do the transforming work that only you can do in us for your glory, uh, for our good, for the good of our neighbors, and for the good of the nations Lord, we pray this in Jesus name. amen. I think it bears a little bit of review for us, so I want to go back two weeks ago we we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, and that is, as you would imagine, this being the next few verses, closely connected, but Paul is continuing his thoughts on the cross, and so I want us to remember what we looked at a couple of weeks ago from that text. There, Paul began to make a very authoritative and heartfelt appeal to the Corinthian believers, to the church at Corinth. Paul was an apostle sent by Jesus, and so he had the authority to say things to God's people. But he was also the pastor who had had planted this church and started it and spent 18 months with these people. And so he, he loved them dearly, and he was concerned about what was going on. He made a heartfelt appeal to them because there was a serious problem in the church. There were divisions. There were cliques. There were were groups that were forming uh, within the church, and it wasn't good. And and the problem was that the church was mirroring the world and the culture around it, its value system, the value system of the city of Corinth where this group of believers were gathered. Now, Corinth, if you remember, was a very fast-paced place to be. It was a cosmopolitan place to be. It was an exciting place. It was a risque place at times. It was a very successful city. You would say that Corinth was trending. It was very competitive, all about success. I dare say that Donald Trump would have fit in well in Corinth because it was all about being winners. You had to win, and you had to latch on to a winner. And that's what the church was doing. Some saw Paul as the winner, Hey, he was called by Jesus. And so they latched on and said, I'm of Paul. And there were others who saw Apollos as a winner. Gosh, Apollos, when he spoke, he just melted a room. And so they latched on with him. And there were others who saw Peter as a winner. Peter had been with Jesus his whole ministry. He had been in the empty tomb. And so others latched on with Peter. And Paul said, this, is not just, this isn't a problem just of a popularity contest. This is a gospel problem. You guys are messing with the gospel, and that's a serious, serious deal. In fact, if you look back at verse 17, Paul says it's this serious. You're emptying the cross of its power. And so that's why he makes this very heartfelt and authoritative appeal to them. And so in the last uh, message from First Corinthians chapter 1, two weeks ago, we, we looked at Paul's point that he was making that the source of the gospel's power to transform, the gospel has the power to transform, and the source of that power is the cross. It's almost like if you envision the gospel, that in the center of the gospel is the cross, and, the, and that's where the power to transform is emanating from. And so we were called to realign ourselves with the cross. Now it's interesting that Paul in his way of of doing this and and speaking this to the Corinthians and making his point does kind of the flip side or almost the opposite of what preachers are taught in preaching school or or teachers are taught in terms of you should establish the point or make make the principle known and then you should apply it. But Paul really applies the principle first. He says, you guys got a bunch of divisions and you need to get together and then he goes back and says, here is why. It's because of the cross. And so what he does now in the passage that we're going to look at, beginning at verse 18, is he, he drills down deeper into that reality of the cross. And so this morning, we're going to drill down deeper as well, and we're going to ask this question, because Paul answers the why question. The, the center of the power of the gospel is the cross. And now today he's going to help us to understand why is that? Why is that the case? What is it about the cross of Jesus Christ and the message of the cross that enables that message to generate transforming power? How does the gospel of the cross transform people? How does the gospel of the cross transform people? And So our task this morning is a little bit like what happens on this television show called uh, Sports Science. I don't know if you've ever seen this, if you don't like sports very much, you might like sports science, because on this show, they they take some athletic ability, say a baseball player's ability to, to hit a long home run. And they say, now why does this guy, what enables this guy to hit the baseball farther than anybody else? And so they begin to look at the science of it and the mechanics of it. How does he, scientifically speaking, generate that kind of power? That's what we're doing this morning. Let's drill down into the cross and say, how does the cross, how has God enabled the reality of the, not just the cross, but the proclamation of the cross to generate such transforming power, the kind of transforming power that would cause someone to go to Texas and to be part of a mission team, that would cause people to go around the world into their nations with the gospel, to the nations with the gospel. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading at verse 17. The Apostle Paul says, and the Holy Spirit says to us, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the, wise, who, the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world For the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom, is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring the to bring the things, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in his presence. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us. Wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're working toward answering this question. What is it about the cross of Christ, the message of the cross, that enables it to generate such transforming power? How does the gospel transform people? And we need to begin by defining our terms. Paul talks about the word of the cross in verse 18, and then later about the, or earlier about the cross of Christ in verse 17, and then later in verse 23 he talks about Christ crucified. Now Paul here is not just talking about the concept of the cross of Jesus, but he's talking about that very event that is at the center of all history and is at the center of the gospel story. That a man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, who was born of the Virgin Mary, lived for a little over 30 years, gathered a group of disciples, and that he was nailed to a cross and executed and died roughly 2,000 years ago. And that on the third day he arose again from the dead. That truth, that reality, and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. That is what Paul is talking about when he talks about the cross. And in fact, he's what he's even more so talking about is the proclamation of that truth. The proclamation of that reality. The speaking of that event and making it known. You need to picture it like a tsunami. A tsunami is a a great, powerful tidal wave that can wash away an entire uh, village. That's like the proclamation of the gospel. The proclamation of the gospel has that kind of power, but the thing about a tsunami is it was generated by another power before it, an earthquake out in the ocean. And the cross is that earthquake that generates the tsunami-like power of the proclamation of the gospel. When we see the gospel and the proclamation of the cross has such power, a power to divide in this passage. You see, we tend to think that other things are the great dividers of humanity. It's politics. Which political party do you you support? That divides humanity. Or are are you into Black Lives Matter? Or are you into Blue Lives Matter? Or are you into All Lives Matter? But those are not the great dividers of humanity. There's no ethnic distinction that is the great divider of humanity. In fact, in this passage, Paul is showing that as far as Jews and Gentiles are concerned, those ethnic distinctions are going away. No, No, the great divider of humanity is the cross of Christ, and it separates people into two groups, those who are perishing and those who are being saved those who are being saved, Paul says. He's writing to those who are being saved. He's writing to the church. He says, to us who are being saved, notice that when he's addressing Christians, he's not saying, you were saved. That's true, when you trusted Jesus, you received salvation, but God is also in the process of saving you, and he will save you one day when you meet him in glory. And Paul says, to us who are being saved, the gospel, we see the gospel as the power of God because we've experienced that power. We've been redeemed by Jesus' blood. We've been restored to him. Those who are being saved understand that the gospel, some, some backwoods guy from Nazareth, it wasn't just that, that that guy died, but that he was the son of God, the perfect son of God who lived a sinless life that none of us ever could. And that he was, wrongly die- he was wrongly killed, but that when he died, he died in the place of all who would trust in his righteousness, all who would look to him in faith. And so that's where the power of the cross is. A Christian knows that, that, that she once was lost, she once had no power. But through Jesus Christ, she has been restored and forgiven. A Christian knows that he has no power to save himself, but by the grace of God, his heart has been opened to the gospel to believe and be transformed, forgiven, adopted, receiving eternal life. But, Paul says, to those who are perishing, and that word perishing means to be lost, and it's not just that they, they are lost, But they're on their way to great loss. To those who are perishing, they see the cross of Christ as folly, a joke, even a sad joke. Why is that? Why would some people, the perishing, consider the reality that best shows the power of God, why would they consider that to be a joke? Verses 22 and 23 tell us. It has to do with what people demand of God and what they seek from God. Paul takes the social categories of his day, the, the Jews and the Greeks or the Gentiles, and he points out that Jews, those with a religious mindset, they demand from God a sign. Show me a sign. And the Greeks, the more secular mindset they want from God, they want to seek wisdom from Him. But God presents to the world a crucified Messiah. Offensive to the Jewish religious mindset. In fact, it says right in Deuteronomy that someone who hangs from a cross is cursed. I found this um, quote from the church father, Justin Martyr. He had a dialogue with a Jewish rabbi named Trifo. And in that dialogue, he was trying to convince Trifo that Jesus was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And so he referred to the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. And here's how the Jewish rabbi replied. Sir, these and such like passages of Scripture compel us to await one who is great and glorious. In other words, he's not here yet. And take, who would take the everlasting kingdom... From the Ancient of Days as a Son of Man. But this, your so called Christ, is without honor and glory, so that even he has fallen into the uttermost curse of the law of God, for he was crucified. Paul, a Jew himself, saw Jesus the very same way, didn't he? That he was accursed because he got hung on a tree. He didn't understand a until Jesus opened his eyes a crucified Messiah. And so Paul says the, the religious mindset sees the cross as scandalous, offensive. And on the other hand, the secular mindset sees it as a joke. There's no success there. There's no achievement there. There's only, there's only weakness and foolishness. I mean, if he wasn't even guilty, it's just a travesty of justice. That Jesus died. Paul's analysis here exposes humanity's idols. On the one hand, we humans worship the idol of the spectacular show me something that will impress me. Of course, I will determine what is impressive. Or we serve the idol of intelligence. Show me a watertight argument. Give me something that I can logically understand and and put through a grid of reason that makes sense to me. Both those idols are transactional in their relationship to God. It's, It's a human being saying, God, you need to do this for me, and I will believe you. Show me something spectacular. Give me a watertight argument. Otherwise, it just looks like weakness or it just looks like foolishness. Paul exposes the Corinthians themselves, the church, for having adopted and and turning to these kinds of idols. This is their sin. He's talking to believers here. He's saying, you guys have become impressed with human achievement. and, And you've become impressed with human initiative. And you are relying on human characteristics. You see, these Christians were guilty of the same idolatry the, as the world around them. See, the divisions that they were forming I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. They were merely the fruit. The root, the heart issue, was their fascination with human achievement, their intoxication with, with winning and success. That was their idol. And Paul calls them out. He gives them a reality check. Sort of like those, you know those bump things on the side of the road? I didn't know what they were called. They're called rumble strips. You probably all knew that. Every once in a while, you're, you're kind of fading, and you, and you hit the rumble strip, and you, gotta, you, gotta, you, need, a, you need a reality check back, back on the road, keeping it between the lines. That's what Paul is doing here with the Corinthian church. He says, listen, you guys are living like the world around you. You're living like lost people. You're living according to the wisdom of the world. You're operating by conventional wisdom. Wake up. Wake up and smell the kingdom. And Paul does that by making a very prophetic statement using the words of the prophet Isaiah. In verse 19, he says, quoting Isaiah, Guys, understand God says he's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning, he's going to nullify it. He's going to thwart it. He's going to make it as nothing. And then Paul calls out the experts, the intelligentsia of the world around him and the world around us. We have the same types of people. He says, where is the wise person? Where is the the intellectual?" Where is the scribe? Where's the the learned person? Where's the expert on that topic? Where is the debater, the one who can spin an argument, the wordsmith, the spin doctor, the influencer? And the question is, they're nowhere. In light of the cross, they are nowhere to be seen. In fact, Paul what Paul literally says in verse 20 is God has made a fool of them. Verse 20 says at the end, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? It literally says, Has God not made a fool of the wisdom of the world? The wisdom of the world has been made a fool by the cross of Christ. So how did God make a fool of the wisdom of the world? It's through the cross. An event that looks so foolish, an event that looks so weak, turns out is the epic point of all of history. I know that word epic gets thrown around a lot. It's kind of like the word awesome, kind of to the point where nothing's awesome because of everything is awesome. I kind of want to reclaim that word, right? And say awesome only belongs uh, to talking about God because only God is truly awesome. I think epic, we should reclaim that word as well because the only truly epic event in all of history is the cross of christ it is literally epic because when it happened it is the intersection of two epochs in history the old age that is fading away and the new age of messiah that is being ushered in we now live in the overlap of those ages The writer to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus, the originator of our salvation, he mediated a new covenant through his blood at the cross. And in doing so, he ushered in the new age of his kingdom. And so the cross stands at that very center point of history, at the the overlap of the ages, an age that is fading away. Paul talks about that in this passage. He says, you guys are, are operating in reference to these experts who are part of the old age of this world that's fading away, it'll soon pass. Those living outside of Christ's kingdom are still bound to that. And so they see the cross as foolishness and its message as insanity. But to those whom God has called, those who have experienced God's power and the wisdom of God, See the cross as just that, the power and wisdom of God. Paul says to the church at Corinth, and he says to this church this morning through the Holy Spirit, loved ones, that is who you are. You are those that God was pleased to save through the foolishness of the gospel. You are those that he has called with effect from diverse backgrounds. You are those who have a calling. He chose you. Not because you were wise, not because you were strong, not because you were influential. Why? Why would God choose that which is foolish and that which is weak as the central reality of his saving message? Here's the answer, folks. Because it obliterates human pride. It it excludes any form of boasting. And it magnifies the wisdom and praiseworthiness of God and his glory. And so here we have our answer. What is it about the cross of Christ that enables it to generate such transforming power? The cross of Christ transforms people by magnifying the wisdom of God and eliminating any grounds for human pride. The gospel the word of the cross of Christ shows that God is working from a completely different paradigm than man does. God does not call people to himself and secure their faith by either an impressive display of power that would be stimulating the emotions or an impressive logical argument alone that would be merely intellectual. Rather, God aims at the heart through our imagination, by completely humbling our pride by means of the message, the proclamation of the cross. The foolish story of the cross of Christ tells us that we can be accepted by the Father as His children, only by the Father rejecting His beloved Son. The foolish story of the cross tells us that death is killed by death. The foolish story of the cross tells us that the enemy's biggest win was his greatest defeat. The foolish, weak message of the cross tells us that in order for many guilty to be acquitted, an innocent one had to be condemned. The cross, where God's foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of men. The cross, where God's weakness is stronger than the strength of men. Sometimes we think we're, we're pretty strong. Sometimes we think we're pretty wise, us human beings. I've been watching a little bit of the Olympics. made me think about my own days in track and field. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, When I was in college, the track coach convinced me to give throwing the hammer a shot. You know, that thing, uh, it's a shot put on a wire, you whip it around your head a few times, you spin a few times, you let go, and then you scream real loud because apparently that gives you a few extra feet on every throw. (laughs) So I learned how to do that, and you know what, it it, it actually went pretty good. You know, I placed in a couple of meets, I'm like, man, I'm doing all right at this, I think You know, I wonder how far away from going to the Olympics I really am. And so back in those days, before the Internet, I had to find a book in the library and and find out how far Olympic hammer throwers were throwing it. (laughs) I pretty much hung up the hammer after that because I realized I had no shot. My best throw, my strongest throw, paled in comparison. It was only a small percentage of a world-class athlete. Now think about that in terms of, of whatever strength we human beings can muster, whatever wisdom we can come up with. Our strength pales in comparison. It, it, compared to God's strength, it is weakness. But at the cross, God's weakness, what looks weak, a savior, hanging on a cross, seemingly helplessly dying. What looks foolish, how can you save people? How can the Messiah be king if he's being killed and accursed as a common criminal? What looks like foolishness, what looks like weakness at the cross is in fact the strength of God and the wisdom of God. And God designed it to be that way. So that when he calls people to himself, we have no basis by which we can boast. And it is all of him. I appreciated Tim's prayer request. Help, Lord, help me to remember that you are doing this in and through me. Friends, that's, that's all of our prayer request, isn't it? The cross shines the spotlight on God's grace and it humbles our pride. Through the cross, Jesus is our righteousness. We receive his righteousness. That's nothing we achieve for ourselves. Through the cross, Jesus is our sanctification. We are declared to be holy, set apart for God. It's nothing we do for ourselves. Through the cross, Jesus is our means of redemption. We cannot save ourselves, it took a sinless Savior. So how do we respond to this message? Well, fortunately for us, the response is built right into the text, the very last line. Why, why is Paul telling us this? Why is the Spirit telling us this this morning, verse 31? So that, quoting Jeremiah, none of us will boast except in the Lord. None of us will take pride except in the Lord. I want to apply that to us in two different ways this morning, first individually and then as a church body, first thinking on an individual basis, that we're called not to boast in anything, or another way to say that would be not to rely on anything other than Christ and what he has accomplished at the cross. I want to ask you this morning, what are you tempted to rely on in the place of Christ and what he has accomplished for you at the cross? You know, maybe you are the wise or the intelligent. You know, the text said, it's interesting, not many of the Corinthian church were wise or intelligent, but that meant that some of them were, and so I'm sure that's true. Of some, if not many of us here this morning. Maybe some here are the wise. You are the intelligent, the strong, the well-born. You've been given many advantages in the world. The question this morning is, are you relying on them or is your confidence in what Christ has accomplished for you maybe you are like the Corinthians those who were not well-born you don't didn't have those advantages but you believe in hard work people should be rewarded for their effort Uh, that financial stability is available that you can be secure That education will ensure that your kids have a happy life, that you can accomplish things and be comfortable. Jesus told a parable about a man who lived with that kind of conventional wisdom. And Jesus' warning to him was, you fool, you fool. That is not kingdom thinking. That is the mindset of of the age that is passing away, and of this world which is passing away with the use. Jesus' invitation to all of us this morning is, rely on me. Trust in me. The cross is proof, Jesus says, that I have cared for you in the past and that I will care for you in the future. The cross tells us that, that God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not along with him graciously give us all things, everything we need as we rely on him? You know, another way of asking what you boast or glory in is to ask, what do you worship? And I think this is an ideal time for Kishwaukee Bible Church as you think about the season ahead and the new season that the Lord has for you as a church to ask that question. What will we as a church body worship? What will we value as a church? Will it be making a name for ourselves in this county? Will it be to be liked or thought of as a problem-free church? Will it be to grow bigger and more influential than other churches? Will it be to be the most doctrinally sound church, or the most missions-focused church, or the most you-fill-in-the-blank church? What will cause you to want to boast about your church? Friends, wherever the Lord is taking this congregation in the days of ahead, I believe He's taking this congregation somewhere. May the boast of this church always be that we know the Lord, that we're Jesus' redeemed people, that we've been forgiven, that we've been restored, that he's called us to be the children of God. There's no greater thing to boast in. There's no greater thing to to worship than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen. Lord, we thank you for drawing our attention once again to the cross of Christ. And understanding that it is the lens through which you have called us to view everything else. Lord, forgive us for the weak, foolish idols that we cling to. And in so doing, forfeit the grace that could have been ours. Lord, thank you for reminding us of the depth of your love for us in Jesus. May we find great hope. May we find great security. May we find great confidence, not in ourselves, but only in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H bible.org.